Hello and welcome or welcome back to Morning Cup of Controversy. My name is Ryan and I'm your host. This week we're going to be talking about Ted Bundy and his crimes, his spree of murders. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead right now and give a little bit of a disclaimer. Obviously, talking about Ted Bundy, I'm going to be talking about some pretty heavy, heavy subjects. So if this is not an episode that you are interested in listening to due to the graphic subject, I totally understand. I'd go ahead and skip if I were you right now. So, most of these topics that I cover, or have already covered, um, they have a lot of information, and I can actually cover or do multiple episodes for each. Like I said in the mental health episode, that um, I I have enough information to do multiple episodes on mental health. I have enough information to do multiple episodes on conspiracy theories. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. So, if there's stuff that you guys want to see more of, just reach out and let me know. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and move on to the question of the week. Okay, last week our question was, what actions can you take to help someone exhibiting signs or symptoms, and how might this benefit the person? Lots of people sent me messages after last week's episode, uh, basically saying that just seeing an open dialogue helps a lot. To see that it's, if, that it's okay to talk about your mental health and what you're struggling with, and not just that I personally opened up, but the fact that I had other people sharing their experience as well that was different than mine, um, it seemed to help a lot of people understand that it's okay to open up. Uh, I tell my friends all the time to vent to me if they need to, because I know how much it would mean to me, you know, if somebody just came up to me and said, you can talk to me if you need to, if you need somebody to talk to, you know, I'm always here for you to vent, um, you know, I'm an unbiased person in your life, basically. I mean, and you would you would hope that people in your life are going to be biased in your favor, but at the end of the day, sometimes you kind of need somebody who's going to be, you know, neutral in your position. So, I think that that's very helpful to have people um, in your life with an open mind, and people seeing this dialogue started helps a lot for them to have more of an open mind, and that's exactly what I was talking about in the last episode, to break the stigma. Um... I was always scared that I'd be labeled crazy if I opened up about what I was struggling with. Mostly just because you don't really hear a lot of like the specifics of dealing with depression, anxiety, PTSD, anorexia, and those are just the specific things that I deal with. And you know, a lot of mental health you don't really hear the specifics about what goes on behind the scenes. So I feel like it, it, it's nice to hear other people kind of explaining what they have been through and are going through to understand that you're not alone and you're not crazy. So this week I want to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted because this week's episode is going to be so heavy that I wanted to just this question just to be a little bit um, easygoing. So this week I have, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would it be? I think for me personally, it would have to be Japan, just because I've heard so much about it. I've seen so many beautiful things, picture-wise. You know, there's so much to see there. Um, I feel like Tokyo, Kyoto, what else? Like Mount Fuji, and so much more. Like there's just so much to see there. That's like, what's the word? It's it's like the culture. I, I want to experience the culture of Japan. Um, 
I've heard so many beautiful things about it, like I said, and one of my favorite YouTubers, PewDiePie, some of you may know him, um, he moved there recently and he brags about it all the time, so. Something I also think about though, whenever you think of that question, like where could you travel, where would you travel if you could travel anywhere, is that, you know, most of the places, <clears throat> excuse me, most of the places are pretty romanticized, um, you know, if you don't experience something for yourself, like I... I know for a fact that Hawaii is very romanticized because, yes, it's a beautiful place to go visit, um, but a lot of people, a lot, you know, the people that live there, it's not like what you see in the movies, basically, and when you go vacation there, it's very, very expensive, you know, so it's, it's obviously romanticized, and if you have money, then maybe that's not an issue for you, but my, I know my cousin um, just recently went there on her honeymoon and they had a great time but they didn't do a whole lot because the money you know and it's more for i guess you you know would go to hawaii more for like the sites and less for spending money but at the same time it's hard to do anything like that especially like japan because that's in a different country you know so stuff like that is really hard so it definitely is romanticized to a degree but you know just something fun to think about if you could travel anywhere in the world where would it be let me know y'all's answers down in the comments but for now we're gonna go ahead and move on to the topic of the week I mentioned already that Ted Bundy was gonna be our topic of the week um, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it Ted Bundy was an American serial killer and rapist. He was known as the campus killer. So just like I did with the Jeffrey Dahmer episode, I want to talk a little bit about his childhood and some of the behavioral science behind um, his childhood and how this stuff could have potentially led to who he was in the future. So, first of all, Ted Bundy was born... November 24th, 1946, in a home for unwed mothers. Uh, as he was growing up, he was led to believe that his mother, whose name is Louise Cowell, um, was actually his sister. Uh, a quote from him from years later in an interview, he said, Maybe I just figured that there couldn't be 20 years age difference between a brother and a sister, and Louise always took care of me. So he kind of, he kind of understood what was going on, even from a young age. Uh, at three, him and Luis left Philadelphia and moved to Washington, and Bundy hated it, but he hated it even more when his mother got involved with an army hospital cook, and his name was Johnny Bundy. So you could say that this might be where it all started for um, Bundy coming into his life, but, you know, some things happened a little bit further down the road, and all of this stuff so far is attributing to a troubled family life, which is the first thing that I marked in his behavioral signs from his childhood. Um, so in 1951, which was when Ted Bundy was six years old, or five years old, pardon me, uh, Luis and Johnny got married. Um, little Ted would have public freakouts and meltdowns out of pure jealousy that his mom was happy in a new relationship. And when I say public freakouts and meltdowns, I mean that he would wet his pants in public on purpose to make Johnny and his mom mad and he would also wet his bed at home um, that probably wasn't so much on purpose but that 
you know, wetting the bed and wetting your pants as a kid is another sign. Um, the behavioral science behind criminals have kind of marked as one of the teller signs of not necessarily like this kid is going to be a serial killer because they wet the bed, but it's one of the things that kind of attribute to all the different qualities in Ted Bundy's childhood that could have potentially led him to be who he was, you know. So obviously Ted uh, didn't get along with Johnny very well. He didn't like him. Uh, even from a young age, Bundy was a very materialistic person. He wanted all the nice things and the nice clothes and all the fancy toys, but his stepdad obviously couldn't prov provide that for him and frustrated Ted. Um, he was said to provoke Johnny. Um, he would try to start fights with him and Johnny would put his hands on him a couple of times in front of friends and family and it would be, you know, noted later in life in interviews and whatnot. He resented the fact that he was illegitimate and he was humiliated and his cousins would even tease him with his birth certificate by rubbing the blank space on the father line in his face. And that made him really mad. And those are just a couple things from his childhood, but, um, you know, as a society or, you know, as humans, as science, we know that certain certain mental health things can be passed down through genetics. And we know that Bundy's grandma, um, his maternal grandma, or I actually am not 100% if this was maternal or paternal because I did not write that down. Before they moved to Washington, um, he was getting into Luis's dad's pornography collection, which, you know, it was graphic pornography. It wasn't just pictures, drawings. It was graphic stuff. Um, violent stuff and so from a young age he was exposed to that and that wasn't for sure a fact but it was just said that he could have potentially gotten into that at a young age which is obviously something that could affect him but Bundy's grandma also suffered from depression and agoraphobia and his grandpa had been described as the owner of a violent rage so that didn't help his case at all we know that Bundy had issues when it came to sex so behavioral scientists think that a lot of this, you know, the pornography stuff and things that he learned from his childhood um, could be where his sexual devi deviancy came from. Um, and then the last thing that I noted as one of his major behavioral signs um, from childhood was bullying and antisocial behavior. And he was bullied a lot in school, mostly just because he didn't fit in. Um, he had a speech impediment that he was bullied for. Um, he wasn't ever really able to keep up with the other Boy Scouts, and so he didn't fit in with the other kids for those reasons. Um, in high school, he was a loner who only ever went on one date, and he, I wrote that he lacked the social graces that he used to his advantage later in life, which is very true. Um, he even said, it wasn't that I disliked women or was afraid of them, it was that I just didn't seem to have an inkling as to what to do about them. And... So that's just kind of how he felt about women at that time. And obviously that changed over time. And I don't know exactly what made that change, but different aspects of his childhood and the way he grew up, maybe the way that his mother was treated or maybe the way his mother treated him. There was a lot of weird and, you know, negative aspects of his childhood that definitely affected him. Um, another quote that he gave said, your performance is measured by different rules and what happens when everybody is peeling off into little clicks in the hallway. 
So he definitely wasn't a fan of the clicky type of people at school. Like I said, he didn't really fit in, so he wasn't really the type of person to go hang out with a group of people in the hallway. Um, Whereas, you know, just to compare for a second, Jeffrey Dahmer, we see in the movie My Friend Dahmer, that when he was in high school, he would do anything to fit in. Ted Bundy, on the other hand, didn't care whether he fit in or not. I mean, I'm sure it affected him, but at, at the end of the day, he found a way to get by, and he didn't really... You know, the cliques and the popular people, it wasn't a huge deal to him. Jeffrey Dahmer wanted to be in the spotlight, and he would multiple times put himself in the spotlight by acting wild in front of his classmates or just doing some crazy dare that he got just because he wanted that attention and that spotlight. Bundy liked to scare people. This was just something else um, that was kind of off-putting about his childhood. Multiple times he would sneak up behind fellow Boy Scouts and strike them over the head with sticks. Um, like big sticks, not just like a little baby stick trying to break it over their head. Like he was trying to knock them out with a log, practically. And he also liked to make something called a tiger trap, which I didn't know what that was until I started doing research on this on um, Ted Bundy. But it's basically where you dig up a hole in the grass or in the dirt and you put a sh- like a, a stick sticking straight up out of the bottom and like in the middle of the hole and then you cover it with leaves and sticks and stuff and one little girl actually fell in and hurt her leg and this was something that was um pretty pretty interesting about his childhood to me because it just shows that he he had some type of interest in injuring people you know um trying to find a way, like, sneaky ways to hurt somebody without getting caught. And it's not even really that he didn't want to get caught at that point, I feel like. It was just, he was trying, he was, he was experimenting, just kind of like how Jeffrey Dahmer experimented with the, uh, with the animals that he was doing what he was doing with as a kid. It's kind of just each individual serial killer or criminal's way of experimenting with their deviant side. Um, Around this time, he also was said to enjoy reading books with graphic tales of rape and murder. So that definitely, definitely raised some red flags for his family at the time, but it was never really something that they felt the need or the will to do anything about. So it just kind of went unsolved. (laughs) So let's move on past his childhood. I mean, this next thing that I want to talk about real quick is still kind of his childhood, but past his childhood behavioral signs. So this is just a big may have, but he may have killed his first victim at the age of 14. Um, Eight-year-old Anne-Marie Bird disappeared in the middle of the night in her Tacoma home on August 31st, 1961. Bundy only lived a few miles from their house at this time, and it was possible that he was out spying on people's homes that night and spotted the opportunity, um, you know, that he just couldn't pass up at that point. Um, There's several things that led people to believe that Bundy was responsible for this, but he never confessed to it. And, um, I'm sorry, but he never confessed to it, and there wasn't much more than circumstantial evidence to prove that he did it, so that that just kind of was left there. 
he hinted all the way up until his execution that he had been officially linked to other victims, but with this one, he may have been a little reluctant to admit to committing the crime because he was still living at home. Because all of, all of his crimes that he did admit to was when he was on his own, and he was proud that he was doing this, you know. He was proud of his M.O., which his M.O. <clears throat> is the next thing I wanted to talk about. Um, he first began prying on women prying on women and getting them alone by posing his arm in a sling and asking them to help move things into his car. Um, later on, we see that he also used crutches, you know, fake crutches and a boot or whatever to trick women into thinking that he was injured in some way. And he would then physically and sexually assault them before killing them and hiding the bodies in the woods most of the time. Um, and then also most of the time going back to commit sexual acts on the bodies after he had already killed them. So, next I want to talk about the victims. Um, I want to give recognition to the victims and the survivors of Ted Bundy's brutal crimes. There's estimates of up to 100 women, and that's mostly just because of the way that he described his killing spree. Um, but we're going to go ahead and touch on a little bit of what happened to each of the victims and the ones that we don't talk about what happened, I'm going to say their names towards the end of this. So, first off, Joni Lenz was 18 years old, and this was 1974. She was raped with a bedpost, but she survived the attack. Linda Ann Healy, 21, 1974. She was kidnapped, and her body was found on Taylor Mountain in 1975. Susan Rancourt was 18. 1974, she was abducted on campus at Central Washington State College. Her skull was found later near Taylor Mountain, where Bundy placed several heads over the years. Brenda Carol Ball, 22. In 1974, she was abducted in, the, in a town south of Seattle. Her skull was found at Taylor Mountain as well. Janice Ott, 23. And Denise Nusland, 18. Um, this was July 14, 1974. Both women were abducted and found in the same location in the woods. Around this time, um, August 1974, Bundy had crossed over state lines into Utah, and he started um, picking his killing spree back up there. Carol DeRanche was 18 years old. Um, she, November 8, 1974, <clears throat> so this was about a month after Ted Bundy had crossed over into Utah. Posing as a police officer in Murray, Utah, Bundy lured her from a mall to his tan Volkswagen Beetle, where he attempted to apply handcuffs before she escapes. The same day, later that day, Deborah Kent, 17 years old, um, she disappears after leaving a high school play to pick up her younger brother. The investigators found a key in the school parking lot that fit the handcuffs that were used on on Carol DeRanche. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. After I talk about the victims, I'm going to talk about his capture. So we'll go ahead and move on. After Deborah Kent, he surfaced in Colorado for a little while. And this is where he killed Karen Campbell, who was 23 years old. January 1975, heading to her hotel room in Aspen when she disappeared. Um... Her body was found naked and beaten but on the side of the road. Then we have Julie Cunningham, 26. 
1975, she was walking to a restaurant to meet a friend. She offered to help Bundy, who was pretending to be on crutches. He kidnapped her, drove her to the desert, where he strangled her to death and left her body there. Lynette Culver, 12 years old. 1975, she was abducted from her neighborhood in Pocatello, Idaho. Um, this was before he was um, apprehended, I believe, which I said, like I said, we're going to talk about here in just a second. But Bundy confessed that he killed her and threw her body in the Snake River, and her body still has not been found. So this was kind of another one of those ones where the only reason they know he killed her was because they that because he said he did but without a body they can never prove that that was one of his victims but the fact that he even mentioned her and her name it made me want to say her name you know margaret bowman 21 lisa levy 20 kathy kleiner 20 karen chandler 20 the night of january 15 1978 he attacked all four women in the chai omega sorority house at Florida State University. Bowman was beaten with a piece of firewood and strangled to death. Levi, or Levy was also beaten and strangled to death. Kleiner was bludgeoned so bad to the point where her jaw was hanging off. And Chandler, just like her roommate, was beaten. And despite a broken jaw, broken right arm, and four teeth knocked out, she survived. Cheryl Thomas, 21, the same night, he crawled through the window at a different house and attempted to beat her to death. She survived after her neighbor raised an alarm over all the noise. So five women just in one night within miles from each other and two survived. Yet he still didn't get caught. <laughs> not for a little bit long, not for a little bit longer. So his youngest and last victim, Kimberly Leach, she was 12 years old. He did have another 12-year-old victim, but the only reason Kimberly Leach is labeled as his youngest victim is because she's the only one who um, has remains that have been found. She disappeared in the middle of her school day, and then her body was found two months later. Donna Gail Manson, Roberta Parks, Georgian Hawkins, Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Ann Smith, Laura Ann Aim, Denise Lynn Oliverson, and Susan Curtis. All of those women's names that I just said were victims of the brutal, brutal attacks of Ted Bundy. Whether they were survivors or not, they were victims of Ted Bundy. Some of them may even still be living to this day. I have not done very much research on that, and I'm sure even if I did, these women would not want to be found. You know, obviously they don't want to talk about this. They did enough, you know, talking about it um, to get him put away and put down forever so let's go ahead and talk about his capture and his experience with prison because there was more than one experience with prison so for years people in his life had gone to the police saying they knew it was him they had seen him they recognized the car they saw the girl get into his car they even even his longtime girlfriend tried calling the anonymous anonymous tip lines one or two times after seeing sketch art of the suspect and she knew it was him she knew you know he was gone that night or he's been acting weird lately she knew it was him and it some of the movies that um, some of the movies that there are about Ted Bundy kind of show that I think just the one on Netflix 
but there also is a documentary from it's it's about the um girlfriend of Ted Bundy and you know what she dealt with at that time so that one's a really interesting one and I'm pretty sure I have that listed below But basically, the police always denied the fact that Ted Bundy could ever have anything to do with this. No matter how many of the facts in the case fit him, they could never imagine that Ted Bundy would do such a thing, right? And so they just brushed it off and kept looking for the suspect. And this could have potentially stopped most of his killings if they hadn't have been so ignorant. Um... There was literally women coming out, women who had survived. I mean, I told you guys, there's so many people survived. Not so many, unfortunately, not as many as we would like to see survive. But the few that did survive, I know for a fact that they went, some went to them. Why do you think they have a sketch art of him? You know, and the fact that people were able to say, I see the sketch, I know who that is. Yet the police still just brushed it off and said, no, we're still looking for the right person. It's ridiculous. So because of this, Bundy was on an active killing spree from 1974 to 1978, ranging in Washington, Oregon, Utah, um, Florida, and leaving a literal trail of bodies on his way. 1975, he was stopped by an officer, and due to the unusual circumstances of the stop, mostly just the visual circumstances, um, it was just... The way he was acting was weird. The police officer could see some weird items in the back seat, and so he was taken in on suspected burglary. And with the evidence that was taken from his car, they were able to place him as a suspect for the Carol Durant kidnapping that I mentioned earlier, the one who was placed in handcuffs and escaped. And they found the key in that parking lot whenever he kidnapped the next girl. So at this time, authorities felt confident that they had enough to place him as the main suspect for the tri-state murders um, that they had that had been taking place over the last couple of years. And like I said, this was in 1975, so it was the last two years that it had been taking, taking place. He went to trial for the attempted kidnapping in February 1975, and after waiving his right to a jury trial, he was sentenced 15 years in prison. So during the beginning of his time in prison, they were able to link him to other murders thanks to his credit card statement um, being in the area of where the women were when they disappeared, and just due to the circumstances around what he had already been charged with. Um, and then in October 7, 1975, he was charged with the murder of Karen Campbell, um, and that one was the first one in Colorado that he committed. Um, he was able to be sentenced to 15 years of prison for the attempted kidnap of Carol DeRanche, and then he was also, um, shortly after that, charged with the murder of Karen Campbell. So, Bundy was extradited from the Utah prison to Colorado for that trial, and since he served as his own lawyer, it gave him the freedom to move freely between the courtroom and the law library, and a quote that he gave about this time period said that more than ever I was convinced of my own innocence. Yet in June of 1977 he escaped out the window of a law library even though he was captured a week later and sent back to prison still he escaped you know and he was gone for a week and who knows what he had done in that time period. 
especially since he was a murderer and also in trouble for attempted kidnapping. It was kind of a big deal. So, he went back to prison. In December 30th, uh, on, on, so six months later, on December 30th, 1977, Bundy escaped prison and made his way to Tallahassee, Florida, where he picked up a fake identity. His name was Chris Hagen, and this was to rent an apartment near Florida State University. He used stolen credit cards to buy food and pay his way at this time. And Tallahassee, Florida is where he committed the murders of most of his final victims. Shortly after the murder of the 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, he was arrested while driving a stolen car. Then, in June 25, 1979, Bundy was given two death sentences and eventually a third for Leach's murder. Um, before he was executed, he gave details to investigators and just pretty much anybody who went and did an interview with him for more than 50 women that he had murdered. Um, and he also at one point confessed to keeping the heads of some of his victims at home to engage in necrophilia. Um, a quote that I found from him said, they are a part of you, become a part of you, you, um, and you are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you will always be drawn back to them. It's just crazy to think that that's actually how people think, you know? It's actually wild. <laughs> so crazy. But, so, after all of that, him escaping twice and, you know, getting caught, he eventually got sentenced to two death sentences, like I said, and eventually a third. So, Bundy's last day. He did not request a last meal. Um, he was So he was given the standard steak, eggs, hash browns, and toast since it was morning time. And he didn't eat any of it, so he died hungry. Which is awesome. <laughs> Great. Dope. Um, it's also reported that he spent the night before crying and praying. Um, as he was led down to the chamber, his face was sullen and gray. And any hint of the old Bundy was gone. Bundy never felt an ounce of remorse or guilt, saying this after his conviction. Guilt doesn't solve anything, really. It hurts you. I guess I'm an enviable person for not having to deal with guilt. And honestly, I would say he's an enviable person for not having to deal with guilt, but if I'm, you know, if I really think about it, I don't envy him for any reason, you know. There's no reason why you should envy a serial killer. I mean, I guess. I mean, I definitely don't envy him for that reason. I envy him for being a horrible person, you know. But to each their own. I'm sure some people would rather not have to deal with guilt, but I'd rather deal with guilt than, you know, be Ted Bundy. So... Um, right before he was executed, he called his mother, who did not attend the execution. She later said, it's a circus, and we didn't feel the agony we would go through by going down there would compensate for a few minutes talking to Ted through glass. And he also felt that way, too. But, you know, I, I <laughs> it sounds like I was a little bit mad when I wrote this, 
Um, I wrote, Ted Bundy had last words, but only for his family, telling his attorney and Methodist minister, Jim and Fred, give my love to my friends and family. No remorse, not a single ounce of guilt, not up until the second that he died. He never felt, he never felt guilt, never felt remorse. Just a completely numb human being, numb to everything. And the only thing he felt passion for was murdering, like literally killing people. And it's awful. I don't, I don't know. I talk about the behavioral science behind why these people do what they do, but it still doesn't in any way, shape, or form explain to me why they do what they do, you know? It's horrible. But Bundy was executed January 24th, 1989 at 7.14 a.m. There's a lot of good... Um, I wouldn't say, like, good movies. They're, they're interesting movies. There's a lot of very interesting movies about Ted Bundy. And I went ahead and wrote down six of my favorite ones, the best ones that I feel like give you good, accurate information. First of all, I'm going to say The Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which is the Netflix Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron. I did not like that movie because it makes him... I mean, it really shows what it was like to know him in real life and know the behind the scenes and really see how privileged he was as a person, as a white person back in that time. And a white murderer at that, you know. And his his girlfriend was going through so much dealing with dealing with the fact that she thought this is what he was, but she couldn't prove it and he wouldn't be honest, you know. I didn't I just I didn't like that movie probably because it made me so mad that this is how they saw him back then. You know, they didn't believe anybody when they said he could be that bad person and he could do those horrible things. So that's why I didn't like that movie, but it's honestly still good because it shows that, and that was really what it was like to be around Ted Bundy at that time. Um, there's another one that's just called Ted Bundy. There's Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman. There's Bundy. There's The Stranger Beside Me, and there's also The River Man. So that is going to be enough of my serial killer talk today. Let's go ahead and move on to the quote of the week. This this week's quote came from my beautiful mother, and this was not her quote, but I asked what her, one of her favorite ones was, and this was what she gave me, and I actually really liked it. And it reminds me a lot of her, because she's very creative, very intelligent, very creative. So it says... Creativity is intelligence having fun. Albert Einstein. And I just like that one a lot. It was super cute, super fun. Thought it was a really nice way to end this episode. Um, you know, a pretty heavy subject episode. So, if you guys made it this far, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for all of your support, always. Hopefully y'all are okay with some episodes being audio only. Um, it's just going to make my life ten times easier and also take a lot of the stress out of this for me because I want to be able to have fun with this and not stress myself out too much. I don't want this to feel like a full-time job so I'm trying not to and dealing with the editing and all that just makes it feel like an extreme technology job that I don't know how to do. So some weeks are going to be audio only, some weeks will be posted on YouTube, 
for now. Eventually, I'll get to a point where I can do all the episodes on all platforms for whoever likes it on wherever. But for right now, we're going to do a mixture. Um, anyway, for now, go ahead and check me out on all my other socials. They're listed down below in my link fee. Also, there's going to be some resources for abortion, for mental health, all kinds of stuff down there. So go ahead and check that out as well. My Discord is linked in my link B. Sometimes there's some issues with it. So if you're having any issues with it and you want to join my Discord, find us on Instagram. Comment on one of my posts. I have different mods that can help out with um, sharing and getting you guys into the Discord. So... Again, thank y'all so much, and I hope y'all have a great rest of your week, and I will talk to you next time. Bye!